Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you as always for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know about the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, and by the way, if you want to comment on anything we talk about, you can email us science at newstalk.com or tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science and we get into the weeds with those at the end of the show. Coming up on this week's programme, what we can learn from the objectively disgusting naked mole rat. Kicking off the show, we look back at the week's science news and see what's new. We're joined by Dr. Oren Kennedy from RCSI and from the University of Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Oren, has to do with a catalogue of human cells. Ah, yes. So this is another fantastic study. It's um, essentially about mathematical patterns that we see in nature. And that's not a new uh, story, I suppose, but in this case, it relates to the number of cells in the human body. So it's sort of new and uh, kind of a big deal for that reason. The summary is that there's an inverse relationship between the size and number of cells in this story. So tiny cells in your body, like your blood cells, red blood cells, there's lots of them. They tend to be very numerous. And then larger cells, like muscle cells, for example, tend to be fewer in number. But this study is showing that they end up with around the same mass. So there's about the same if you had a bag of each of them in each of your hands they weigh about the same amount even though there's obviously far more of the smaller cells than there are of the larger cells this is a a relationship that's present in other situations from even from in in oceanography for example the sheldon spectrum shows something similar about plankton and sea life and things like that it's even present in linguistics it's called zip's law in linguistics i'm sorry it's called what's law yeah it's a hard one to say zips z-i-p-f-s so yeah that's zips law and but for this work it's it's so it's not ama- amazingly surprising but it took a huge amount of work and data and it's actually part of the story is interesting too because one of the authors in this study is a man called jeff shander and he's an independent researcher you don't find many independent researchers these days hmm. he started off this work looking at data openly provided by an international commission just a big group basically that did um, radiological studies actually and he got access to human tissues and uh, started basically doing this count. Um, he, he went to other people with his um, information, which as it happened was based on males only. So this research group in Stanford took it up then and used their network around the world. So this is a study including people from Spain and Germany and Canada and all around the world. So a massive study. And they sort of went around and verified it in women, children, and bigger groups of people. And they, they found that this applied across a huge number of sources. They had 1,500 sources altogether. And in the end of it, it came out that uh, men tend to have about 30 six trillion cells females tend to have uh, 28 trillion cells and your average 10 year old has about 17 trillion cells in their body so that's kind of wait well well, well hang on a second that is a, a lot of a difference does that is that just weight on average yeah, i mean put, some of it comes down to size for sure and uh, that's probably that probably is the main factor so again it's not like it's not massively shocking i suppose but it's right. uh, it's always nice to get quantitative uh, measures on these things they also found things like uh, from a sort of a disease point of view that lymphocytes everybody knows them these days because they're a big part of your immune system there the number of them that we have is drastic has drastically been underestimated apparently there's also the kind of implication for cancer and diseases where you have a lot of cell division and cell number becomes important in those kind of situations as well and this puts this is sort of a benchmark i suppose on that and, and overall they summarize it by saying that there's some there, there might be some sort of underlying deep mechanism for you know cells and life and you know stuff in the ocean where all these things tend to balance out so that's the sort of summary of that story 
Are you talking about a sort of um, Fibonacci spiral yeah. sort of r- relationship between large cells, big cells, uh, large cells and small cells within organisms, no matter what they are? Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. Or and systems. That, that even fits into a bigger sort of system around nature. You know, that's the sort of suggestion here, whether it be, you know, uh, Zips law or whether it be uh, plankton in the ocean or whatever like that that it's some sort of deep underlying mechanism of everything not just cells and humans but that 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 fits into the uh, bigger uh, picture situation as well so i wonder does it apply to our universe as well when it comes to planetary bodies stars and and black holes and so on um maybe someone out there might know uh jessamine our second story has to do with pink diamonds which I, i have to confess i didn't realize were a thing Yeah, well, what's interesting about pink diamonds is that about 90% of them in the world come from this one mine in Northwest Australia. And new research out of Curtin University, also in Australia, thinks that they figured out why that is. So basically, this is the Argyle mine in Northwest Australia, um, very, very isolated and remote location, kind of at the edge of a continent, which is a little bit unusual in terms of diamond mines. Most of them are in the middle of a continent. Why is Um, that? Well, one of the reasons is the incredible pressure that you need in order to form a diamond. Right. So diamonds are carbon, which is a pretty boring substance, but also interesting in some ways. If the carbon is uh, less than 150 kilometers deep in the Earth's crust, you're never going to get diamonds. You get graphite, um, which is basically just sheets of carbon atoms that are you know, great for writing with. Um, not that nice on a ring or anything. Um, but for uh, carbon that's really, really deep in the crust of the Earth, um, you can get these pressures that are needed to create diamonds. Of course, then how do we get the diamonds? Um, you have to have some sort of a geological event that creates magma that's bringing the diamonds up closer to the surface in these kind of tubes. Right. Often that's happening in the middle of continents. Um, but what these researchers found, they were basically trying to understand the age of this Argyle mine and the pink diamonds in it to try to understand why there were so many there and not really anywhere else. Um, so they got a core from Rio Tinto, the company that owns the recently closed diamond mine at Argyle. And then they used a laser to basically just evaporate different minerals from the core and determine the ages from that. And what they were able to determine is that actually most of those diamonds probably would have come up to the surface about 1.3 billion years ago, which was right when the first supercontinent called Nuna broke up. So most likely, you know, the, the, the time in the past when um, Australia and the plate that it was on would have crashed into another plate to form Nuna was about uh, 500 million years before that, 1.8 billion years ago. That would have been the pressure that created those diamonds. Now, we still don't know why they're pink, right, from that explanation. And one of the things that I think is really cool about this is actually pink diamonds from a from a crystal lattice point of view are really interesting. It's basically a diamond that has had so much pressure applied to it that it's deforming the crystal lattice or the arrangement of the carbon atoms um, in the material that makes light refract through it in a different way, which makes these pink diamonds. Now, if you apply even more pressure, it turns the diamonds brown. We're still waiting for brown diamonds to go on trend. I don't know if that's going to catch on, <laughs> but it's like it's a different mechanism from a lot of other, um, you know, minerals and precious gemstones that would have impurities added to them to create color. Um, in pink, it's just this pressure, this incredible pressure. And so they, researchers think that this is why um, there are so many pink diamonds just from this one location. Um, and in theory, you know, you could use this to try to predict other sources of pink diamonds. But I also just think like. You know, pink diamonds are surprisingly cool, which is a great story for our, you know, Barbie infused summer. Indeed. Yeah. Um, And uh, something about the enormous amount of energy required to make them. It's also a hat tip to Oppenheimer. So it's uh, it's a very on trend story. There you go. (laughs) 
I knew that was going to be a great story to hand to uh, nano scientists working with carbon. Um, okay, uh, Oren, our third story um, is, is an interesting one. It's about the Tasmanian tiger. So going to the southern hemisphere again, and it has to do with RNA as opposed to DNA. Yeah, it's another fabulous study, Jonathan. You could give me all these great stories. It's fantastic. So this was published in <laughs> the Journal of Genome Research, strangely enough, by a Scandinavian research consortium. And I say strange because, as you said, it concerns an animal called uh, thylacine, which is uh, co- more commonly known as the Tasmanian tiger. So it's related to the Tasmanian devil, which some people know, but this is a Tasmanian tiger. So it's a, it's a marsupial, as in same kind of animal as a as a kangaroo, but it was wolf-like uh, native to Australia. The last one died in around 1936. And and they were basically driven to extinction because of the rise of sort of sheep farming and they were seen as predators. So they were effectively wiped out for that reason. They have, and, a, um, they have a specimen in the Dublin Zoo, in the, in the dead zoo. Oh, uh, in the, yeah, in okay. the Natural History Museum. Yeah, it'd be impressive if it was in the Dublin, Dublin Zoo. Zoo. I, just I retract that immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm talking about specimens. Yeah, so they rather blithely say in the study, in this, this group in, in Scandinavia, I think it was in the University of Stockholm, sorry, the Museum, National Museum of Stockholm, it was just there in a cupboard, this uh, fantastic specimen of a, of a Tasmanian tiger, like a you know an extinct wolf. So it was just there in the cupboard and they took some samples from it. They took some skin samples and some muscle samples from it. And as you said, that part two of the story, I mean, I, I've find that stuff amazing just as it is the extinction you know one of the i think it was one of the biggest extinctions in humankind's history was the marsupial extinction when humans landed in australia because they hadn't evolved to be scared of us so there was just this massive dying out of marsupials about forty thousand years ago so this is a fantastic story anyway but part two is that they isolated rna rather than dna and that's really interesting and important because dna is much more stable so it's much easier to get from things but it kind of tells you less as well. Because if you think about it, um, you know, RNA is the, DNA is the instructions for anything that could happen. If you're looking at RNA, it's about what actually has been happening and what the, you know, the cells were doing at a particular time rather than what they had the potential to do. But RNA is much less stable, much more difficult to get a handle on and to understand. So they managed to get RNA and they managed to compare it to their libraries of things. And they found, uh, they found uh, first of all, that this was, in fact, a, a thylacine, uh, the, the sample that they found in the cupboard. They also found they could get microRNAs, which are a subset of RNA molecules, which really tell you how their cells work, all this fabulous information that they could glean. And so it's RNA, it's from an extinct animal, and it was from a a sample, a desiccated sample, which which means it was dried out, it wasn't fixed, it's not an alcohol, there's no ice involved. So that's, that's a massive step forward just in general in terms of what you can get from very old tissues, that we can get much more informative RNA from samples that weren't preserved particularly well, you know. So it's, uh, again, it's another, like, it's an interesting story, fun story, but another huge step forward, really, in terms of, uh, in terms of sort of ancestral and archival um, uh, animals and, and tissues and organisms like this that we can now get really advanced information about. Um, the Jurassic Park question, of course, looms yeah, above yeah, us yeah. As, as always. Um, the RNA, is that in any way um, more useful or useful in terms of um, preserving species maybe that, that are going extinct or bringing back species like the Tasmanian Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they finished tiger. this article with the, with, the, with the sort of throwaway line that this, this may be used to de-extinct the animal, which is a word I'd never heard before, to de-extinct something. <laughs> but uh, again, I think that's probably... Um, 
you know, that, I, I get that that's kind of a, a, an interesting headline for this, but it's, it's not the real, I don't think that's the next stage of this. I think uh, it's more interesting just the fact that they can do this now, do it reliably, do it repeatedly. Um, but, you know, m- maybe that's stuff in the future, but I guess that's not the thrust of this story. Yeah. Uh, finally, Jessamine, very interesting research. Now, this if you are someone who suffers from mental health issues, um, this is just one study, right? But it is quite interesting coming out of the University of Cambridge to do with negative thoughts. Yeah, and specifically about suppressing negative thoughts. So, you know, a lot of modern cognitive therapy is based on this kind of Freudian idea that if we try to avoid thoughts that make us sad or anxious, we end up thinking about them more. You know, it's the like, don't think about a pink elephant. And now you're like, that's all I can think about. Or, or, um, the, or that they, they can... Um, they can lead to much worse outcomes later on if we bottle things in, right? Yeah, exactly. Like that it's still sort of in your subconscious. And a lot of, you know, modern therapy is trying to get these things out in the open so that you can, you know, rob them of their power, like reframe, all that kind of stuff. And researchers at the University of Cambridge and the Medical Research Council in the UK um, during COVID were kind of observing that obviously lots of negative things were happening that most people had no control over. And so they thought, well, you know, what if we could train people to suppress their negative thoughts Um, You know, you can't control the world around you, but can you exercise this sort of inhibitory control over your own negative thoughts um, in a way that is helpful for mental health? So basically, they recruited 120 people worldwide, and they gave them this training where basically they wrote out a number of persistent or intrusive fears. They wrote out a number of hopes and dreams, and then also just some neutral events. Um, And they provided like a cue or details for each You know, an example of a negative event might be, you know, visiting a parent at the hospital as a result of COVID-19. A positive event could be seeing your sister get married. A neutral event could be going to get your eyes checked, that kind of a thing. And they asked participants to rate each event on a bunch of points, like how vivid it was, how likely it was, um, were they anxious or excited about it? Um, how, How frequently did they think about it? This kind of stuff. And then they basically gave them this training where just over the course of three days, they spent 20 minutes Uh, looking at these cues for the thoughts that they had written out and being asked either to imagine them or specifically to not imagine them, like to look at the cue, but not think about the thing and not sort of play it through in their head. Um, And some of them were being asked to, you know, not imagine the neutral or positive events. And some were being asked not to imagine the negative events. And then they followed up again after three months and kind of said, like, did did this work? Um, And they asked them to go through the list of events again. And actually it it kind of did work. Um, The suppression of negative events made revisiting them less powerful. Um, It reduced depression uh, for the people that already had sort of symptoms of depression. And a lot of participants, interestingly, like just voluntarily continued doing the suppression practice. Like they weren't asked to, but they were just like, this is helpful. I'm going to keep doing it, which is a vote of confidence for sure. Um, So it's interesting, obviously like a smallish sample size, um, but I think it, it really does indicate that like there would be more follow-up studies that you could do on this to try to figure out like what are the contexts in which this is useful, right? Yeah. Like there's the idea of rumination where you're kind of repetitively dwelling on negative feelings and their causes. I could see this kind of training being really useful for that. Um, I don't know. Does it help more for things that are outside our control, like the pandemic, where it's like the more you think about this, you're not really going to come to any new conclusions. Mm. Or conversely, like are there topics that it's less helpful on? where, you know, this classic advice of you need to air out these negative feelings and thoughts does apply. Like, <laughs> venting to friends helps. And I think there's got to be a reason for that as well. Um, but it's really interesting because it kind of goes against the common narrative about what we should do with with our thoughts. Uh, I can 
hear a nation of Irish men saying, you mean I didn't have to talk about my feelings at all, all this time? Um, uh, <laughs> like, Irish men, it's good for you. <laughs> is it though? We just find that maybe it's not. Maybe I it's good we'll fi- to not yeah. talk about those things that happened to us. Maybe um, further study is warranted. <laughs> maybe further study is warranted. Uh, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from University of Galway, Dr. Oren Kennedy from RCSI, thank you very much. Now, if you wanted to answer one of life's biggest mysteries, you might not think to ask the naked mole rat, an objectively gross-looking animal, pink, furless rodent-looking thing, tiny eyes, long claws, enormous chopstick eternal teeth. It's hideous. But naked mole rats are very, very interesting creatures, particularly if you're interested in living forever. Our guest now is Dr. Vera Gorbanova. He's from the Rochester Aging Research Centre, the University of Rochester. And we've spoken to her before about her work on longevity. She's new paper out looking at the uh, extension of naked mole rats. Welcome to the programme, Vera. Um, Why are naked mole rats so interesting to scientists? They're very interesting because of their longevity. Uh, They have the same size as a mouse, so it's a small mouse-like rodent. Uh, but they live 10 times longer, up to 40 years, and uh, they stay exceptionally healthy. Uh, they don't um, very, or very rarely develop cancer. They don't develop cardiovascular disease, other diseases of old age. So we are trying to understand uh, how that happens. And if there are any secrets we can take from them and then apply to benefit humans. Yeah, there is a a, a typical correlation between animal size and longevity, right? Smaller animals, uh, relatively shorter lives and larger animals, relatively longer lives. So uh, the the bat and the naked mole rat are real outliers in this particular um, schema. Um, What research have you been doing with regards to the naked mole rat and and why were you interested in it? Yes, you're completely right that naked mole rat is exceptional in many ways. So even if you would think 40 years is not that long compared to human life, uh, but considering the very small size of the creature, it is very striking because we typically don't expect such a small animal to live anywhere more than, you know, a few years. Uh, So we've been studying them now for almost 20 years, I must say. Uh, And um, the first discovery we made, we published it also in Nature, but it was 10 years ago. Uh, where we showed that they have this unique um, extracellular matrix or whatever goo that fills the spaces between cells is unique. (laughs) Uh, It has a lot of hyaluronic acid that is very viscous of high molecular weight. And that's important for cancer prevention for the naked morat. So the next step for us was, okay, let's see if other species can benefit. And we made the mouse... Uh, that carried a gene from naked morat for making hyaluronic acid. And then we wanted to see if these mice will be protected from cancer, if they'll have any other benefits. Um, and, uh, well, 10 years later, <laughs> this is, that comes the result. Uh, the mice were indeed protected from cancer, not to the same extent as naked morat. They still, in mice, cancer is very prevalent. Uh, but the frequency was lowered in the transgenic mice with naked morat gene. And additionally, the mice lived longer. And, and that was really a surprise, a pleasant surprise for us. Uh, not only they lived longer, but they were healthier. 
they had you know better function of their bodies they would you know better grip strength they walk better fewer cataracts so like the whole suite of things that goes wrong with aging everything was delayed in these mice so that is an amazing finding can you just talk to me a little bit about the methodology uh, and how you go about measuring these sort of things how many um individuals are we talking about and how can you have that sort of certainty of of those metrics? Yes, so for the lifespan study, we had about 100 mice uh, of each sex. We had 100 male mice, 100 female mice, uh, and we had control mice and mice uh, with with the gene, transgenic mice. So these are relatively big numbers, uh, which give us confidence. Uh, Now for measuring uh, overall health and frailty, we used different assays. Uh, one of them is called the frailty index. Uh, it is similar to geriatric assessment that is used for older people to evaluate uh, how frail they are, where people have to walk like 10 meters, sit down, uh, show grip strength. So, And then everything is calculated as one index. So there is very similar index a score for mice that we were applying. And the, of course, the investigator who walks in doesn't know which cage contains transgenic mice and which are the wild types. So, so this is a so this is a blind it's a blind yes. trial and the and, and the, these mice because I'm, I'm actually quite interested in the, the mouse model these mice are are they genetically identical or are or you know obviously there's variability in natural things when it comes to mice that are used in this sort of research are they all almost uh, are they all identical and, and expect to give out exactly the same results um, is it a very homogenized mouse that you use these trials for? To, uh, to rule out any variability that might throw off your statistics? Yes, so in this case, we used uh, their so-called inbred mouse strains, uh, and that is a very commonly used mouse strain where they're all genetically identical, right. uh, which makes it easier for us. Hmm. Uh, but of course, naked mole rats that we studied are not genetically identical. They're like any wild animal uh, have differences. But the mice were, so the way we generated these mice, we took uh, mouse eggs uh, and injected into them uh, DNA for the gene from naked mole rat, and then Mm -hmm. it integrated in the genome uh, in a random location. And then we started, we made pups out of those eggs, and then we started breeding them to, to each other and obtained a line of such mice. Uh, there was another technical detail which may be interesting to some people uh, because the initial uh, piece of DNA that we put into mice, uh, the gene was inactive there and because we worried that early in the development it may be undesirable to have a lot of hyaluronic acid. It may slow down uh, fast growth uh, that happens during development. So we then used another genetic trick to turn the gene on when the mouse was grown up. Optogenetics? No, it was um, in the construct that was, it's called so-called lock stop cassette. Uh, so we can remove the stop by giving mice tamoxifen, which is a drug that's used in humans for breast cancer. But here it was just a genetic tool. We give mice tamoxifen and then this tamoxifen binds to the construct and it tells it, okay, you can turn on the gene. 
Right. So just uh, just for people to get their head around what we're we're talking about, um, we're talking about injecting um, the the gene that you want from another um, a mammal that has a desirable trait into the eggs of these mice. Um, and then uh, th- that DNA, uh, it, the DNA stores a gene that is not yet turned on. It's delivered to the mice. The mice are then interbred. That gene is then turned on later by giving uh, a drug because that, that might, it, the drug is, is expressed in adults, but not necessarily expected in, in the pups, which might cause some sort of problems. It sounds like a, a very complex on one end um procedure vera but also it sounds um relatively simple in another way i, d- I don't know um how i can explain it w- when you inject the dna into the cell does it just uh, swim around because the way i suppose um dna is constructed is um it, it can sort of suck parts of the dna uh into its strand as as it builds do you just in- inject snippets of this gene into the the cell randomly or or is that targeted yeah, so there are different approaches to it. You're right, you inject the DNA, it swims around it, it makes its way to the nucleus, and there again it can integrate randomly if there is like a, a little break, a little hole in the host DNA, it may be ligated in it. Um, and this is how these mice were created, because we uh, made them you know, more than five years ago when CRISPR technology was not yet widely used. So right. it, takes, it takes time to make a lifespan study of the mice, even as short-lived. Mm. Uh, if we were to do it today, we would, of course, use CRISPR technology where we can specifically pick a place in the genome and target our insert into that location. Right. But it's it's remarkable that that that, that works and that um, that gene gets integrated into the the genome of the mouse now with this um, this this transfer gene and that and that gene then can be turned on and expressed and in this case you saw um, health and longevity benefits. What sort of numbers are we talking about? You said the mice lived longer. How much longer than a typical mouse in terms of percentages? Well, it was not. Uh... You know, they didn't become naked mole rats, so there was about uh, maximum 10% increase. Okay. Um, so it's modest, but if you think in human years, well, you know, extra 10 years would be nice, especially yeah. extra 10 healthy years. Yeah. Um, the reasons why we didn't see even larger increase, you know, we speculate about it. One of the reasons, um, I think, is that the increase in hyaluronin that we achieved in these mice was also modest. Uh, we didn't uh, make them to produce as much hyaluronin as naked morads. And the okay. reasons for that is that, well, they were making hyaluronin, but they were also breaking it down quite quickly. And in the naked morad, they uh, make a lot, but and they break it down very slowly. Really interesting speaking with you, Dr. Vera Gorbanova from the Rochester Aging Research Center. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.